Today on AM2DM, I am thrilled to be talking to the stars of the Broadway play Betrayal. They're sitting right with me right now, Sawi Ashton, Tom Hiddleston, and Charlie Cox. So we'll see you on the timeline. And I match the couch. And you match the couch. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford, she's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. Here's a tweet from Micah Frazier. Rainbow capitalism has honestly gone too far. Why am I crying hot tears over a Reno ad? <laughs> and here's a tweet from Jake Courtney Grimwood. Fully expecting the novelization rights to be sold for this Renoir ad, followed by the film and the series. Wow. Also, I just learned what this car was today. <laughs> uh, okay, when I started watching this, uh, I did not know that it was a car commercial until sometime in. Yes. Yeah. Because it's like you begin. Doesn't seem like that. So as you're seeing here, Twitter, like you know, you see two women obviously falling in love. They start off as friends, and they get really close. And there's like some pining, some pictures. And then there's a wedding where she's like obviously got with a man and regrets it. And then it ends up. And then like a, a divorce. Like, and then uh, they reunite. And then they buy a car. This is like so. <laughs> this was just so much for me. Uh, I but, felt like I was watching uh, the next or. Uh, Blue is the warmest color. I was I was confusing with Orange is the New Black, another show with a lot Orange of Black, the uh, Reno, yes, the Reno exactly, version. exactly. Yes, a show with a lot of queer women in it. I'm gonna get their name out. It's Reno Twitter. I keep saying Reno. It's Reno. But you know, I really believe this is everyone's coming out story. You know, you fall in love with your high school sweetheart, and you realize you should be together, and you buy a car. I I just I like this. I don't even know if, if we can call this pandering because it is just so amped up and ridiculous. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, yeah, I, I think on the one hand, lovely to be making this statement. Mm -hmm. On the other, like, this is so much. But like, this, for a commercial, this is so much. I mean, we have, it's been called rainbow capitalism, and I agree, like, they're using our stories to sell a car, but something about that last tagline where they say 30 years in the making did touch my heart, because they are right that when the car did come out, it was a very different world, and, you know, being openly queer and falling in love with your best friend wasn't as accepted. We now live in a very different time, and the car looks different, too, so, you know, just matching capitalism production and self-development in one. Sure, America. You are drinking the Kool-Aid <laughs> so hard. Well, right I'm, now, I fear you're about to go out and actually buy this car. I mean, I may shoot. I'm I know. Just kidding. I you won't. know what this speaks to to me? It's like I am so desperate for any kind of queer women's representation <laughs> that I am willing to watch this like car commercial mm -hmm. on replay. Yeah. Maybe I'll set it to like a different song or something. Like I don't know. Like th that's how badly we needed this thing. It made me, you know, it made me realize that the L word is coming out soon again. So you know, we're entering a uh, queer woman uh, season. I think. Yeah, so. I, I hope. I well, I certainly hope so. Yeah. Well, let's take it to the timeline. What commercial makes you cry? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. That's Sarah McLaughlin in the arms of the angel, an oh angel God. ASPCA commercial. I mean, like gutting. Also, like. like just orchestrated to make you cry. <sighs> Feelings and spend money like this commercial. Yeah, I'm a little embarrassed. Capitalism. That's the one that makes me tearful. <laughs> All right, well, I'll be watching that later. Well, here's a tweet from the Legal Defense Fund. Today, SCOTUS will hear three cases that combat the administration's decision to end DACA. An adverse decision will affect nearly 700,000 dreamers and inch the U.S. toward a slippery slope into state-sponsored racial discrimination. Here's a tweet from Nina Totenberg. President Trump, trapped between his base and his desire to sign legislation legalizing the Dreamers, has created a conundrum for his administration and for the GOP. It's enough for Republicans to hope SCOTUS bails them out. Joining us now to discuss the case is Luis Olivas, who is a DACA recipient. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, we're really happy to talk to you about this. And you actually, uh, did you travel to Washington, to D.C. from Nebraska for this case? Um, Why did you want to do that? 
You know, uh, I want to make sure that the folks here in D.C. see the faces of who DACA really affects. Uh, many times people think that it's only folks from the coast, uh, and I'm here to tell you that it's really the people from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, go ahead. Mm, and why do you think the Midwest is such an important narrative to showcase today at the Supreme Court? You know, whenever people start thinking about DACA, they think, you know, the other. Uh, those immigrants that sometimes we, we our society demonizes uh, as a specific subset of people. But I'm here to tell them that it's those neighbors that have lived next to your family for 20 some odd years. Uh, and this, this, this case is really about people. Hmm. So you mentioned this case is uh, about people and uh, DACA actually protected you from deportation in 2012. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and your experience? You know, in 2012, I was set to be uh, removed back to uh, Mexico. I came to the United States when I was six years old, and uh, President Obama's uh, executive order saved me from that. Uh, I went through through the process, and as our government promised me, I had to come out of the shadows and, and stay, stay who I was. Uh, and now, here we are, you know, seven or eight years later, the government is saying, hey, go back to the shadows. And I myself don't think that that's really fair, and I don't think that that uh, measures up to the promise uh, of uh, the American dream. Mm. And tell us, what are the three cases being heard today in front of the Supreme Court? You know, uh, I'm not a, a big legal scholar, so I wouldn't be able to tell you the details. But what I can tell you is that this uh, affects, you know, more than just the 800,000 people that uh, da- of DACA recipients. This affects their families. This affects their children. Uh, this affects all those folks. Uh, I know that SCOTUS is deciding on uh, a couple of different cases on whether the legality of ha- on how the administration ended DACA a couple of years ago. Um, that's what they're going to be looking at. But really, like I said, what we're looking at here from our end is just the faces of those people and who this is really going to affect. Yeah. So uh, how will the various outcomes uh, of these cases impact you? You know, uh, I'm an educator as well as being a DACA recipient and uh, I'm worried about my students. Uh, I'm worried about those members of our community that will be affected if those folks uh, are forced to go back into the shadows. And like I mentioned before, that promise that was made by the American government to us to come out of the shadows and, uh, like many people say, get legal, uh, we went ahead and did that. And now they're wanting to take that back. So uh, we're here to make sure that these folks understand uh, that we are here to stay and this is our home and we're not going to be going anywhere anytime soon. And why do you think it's important for our government to understand that DACA is a constitutional right? You know, uh, our DACA is a constitutional right for these folks because many of these folks, including myself, know no other country other than the United States. Uh, you know, I came to this country when I was six years old, and I consider myself uh, an American uh, in every sense of the word, except for on paper. Um, so I think it's extremely important that these folks see who these DACA recipients are and who these decisions that the Supreme Court is taking a look at today um, uh, are going to affect in the long term. Well, you said you you consider yourself an American in every sense of the word, except for what's on paper. And so what would you like to see happen in terms of a pathway for citizenship, just even beyond this case? You know, we have to look at the grand scheme of things. We're not only talking about 800,000 dreamers, and we can't allow the administration to hold uh, dreamers uh, and DACA recipients hostage in exchange for whatever they're going to be asking for. We need to think about our families and we need to think about our loved ones. Uh, because even if one person uh, gets granted DACA, uh, that's may probably not going to lead uh, to uh, uh, you know citizenship anytime soon. 
Uh, so we need to think of the grand scheme of things and seeing uh, what we can do to reform our immigration system. Mm. But before we let you go, I have to ask, you know, what is going through your mind today as you consider the fact that you're going to be sitting in a courtroom hearing judges talk about your humanity and your future as a person? You know, it's uh, our personhood as uh, immigrants, number one, and as DACA recipients and students and young people is not in the hands of the court. Uh, the decision that is in the hands of the court is just the legal arguments of it. Um, but like I said, what, what we're here to make sure that they understand is that this is going to affect a larger scheme of people across our country. And really, it's going to break that promise that the United States has made uh, to these folks uh, like myself and others across our country. Mm. Well, Luis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. All right, here's a treat from The Atlantic. Gender reveals gone awry have caused a plane crash, a 47,000-acre wildfire, and at least one death. Julie Beck asks how many lives will be endangered before this over-the-top fad is over. Here's a tweet from Adrienne LaFrance. Blame it on Instagram one-upmanship, or blame it on the timeless human impulse to see what happens when you try something stupid. But gender reveal disasters are now happening somewhat regularly. Joining us today to discuss is The Atlantic's family editor, Julie Beck. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So, Julie, let's level set. What is a gender reveal party in the first place? Um, a gender reveal party is a occasion where expectant parents will um, reveal or announce the sex of their unborn child, um, usually very colorfully or dramatically. Um, the sort of simple. A uh, classic version, I guess, is you cut into a cake and inside the cake is blue or it's pink. But um, these things have gotten very elaborate and very sometimes dangerous um, in the past couple of years. People will, you know, shoot guns into explosive boxes full of blue or pink powder. Like that's the level that it's at. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned some of the more dramatic examples uh, in your piece. What are some of those? Yeah, so the um, Arizona wildfires last year um, in 2018, um, it was a 47,000-acre wildfire that was actually started by a gender reveal um, when a man shot a rifle, like I said, at an explosive box. It was full of blue powder, and it had the effect he hoped in that there was a big explosion of blue powder, um, but it also set off this huge wildfire that caused like $8 million of damage and obviously... Um, threatened an entire ecosystem. So that would be the most dramatic one. Um, or also arguable that the woman who died when her family built a pipe bomb accidentally um, for their gender reveal was one of the more dramatic ones as well. Um, there have been a lot of explosions, honestly, um, various fireworks um, or other kinds of explosives. And sometimes they've involved wild animals as well. There were a couple where um, people filled a watermelon with blue jello and then either had a hippo at a zoo or like a wild alligator um, chomp into the watermelon to reveal the jello. Wow. I, I, just, <laughs> I, I am at a loss for words. Yeah, an alligator. How did, okay, that is wild. How did we go from a cake to an alligator and a watermelon? How is this trend becoming such a, a dramatic an affair? Um, you know, I kind of ascribe it to some kind of like communal one-upsmanship madness. I'm not sure. But um, I mean, like you mentioned, um, the tweet that Adrian sent was a quote from my piece. And I think, you know, you could ascribe it to sort of social media and everybody wanting to have a huge spectacle that's like visually dramatic and exciting that they can then post. Um, 
a lot of these things go viral, like not just the ones that I mentioned. Um, you know, you could also say there's, there's a general kind of instinct, it seems these days to sort of celebrate more life events than we used to. So, you know, for example, it's not just a baby shower, it's also a gender reveal or it's not just a wedding. It's also like a post-wedding brunch and like a bachelorette week and wherever. Um, so there's that kind of trend as well. And I think also um, there's just kind of a timeless impulse to try stupid things um, <laughs> that seems to be at play here too. Yeah, I mean, now that uh, some of these gender reveal parties uh, are leading to these tragic incidences, um, do you think that there is power in social media to actually like curb people from uh, doing these things? I honestly doubt it because it seems there's a pretty stark line as far as gender reveals go. There's like, people who are really into them. Um, and then there's people who love to hate on them. And I don't think the twain shall ever meet. Um, both of these things are so commonplace now. You know, there's lists of gender reveal fails that like people love to watch, but people also love to watch the gender reveal videos. So um, it, that doesn't seem like it will do anything but fuel it, in my opinion. Hmm. Well, I guess uh, we will just have to stay tuned for more wild stories of gender reveals. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. God, uh, this is a wild, wild world we live in. Well, you know, moving on. And speaking of wild world, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News editor-in-chief Ben Smith. A scientific study by Fast Company says Hayes Browns' impeachment today is the best impeachment podcast out. Tomorrow is the first day of the public impeachment hearings. That means you need to pull out your phones now and subscribe to Impeachment Today, so you can stay up to date. And we will be covering the inquiry live here most days that it is on, but our friends Hayes Brown will be giving you deep analysis and peach tea in your ears Monday through Friday. Coming up, we sit down with Oscar-winning actor Tim Robbins, but up next, it's Fire Tweets. Welcome back. It's time for Fire Tweets, but before we get started, I do want to mention, soon you'll get to see my sit-down interview with a one Tom Hiddleston, <laughs> along with his co-stars of the Betrayal Broadway show, uh, Zawe Ashton and Charlie Cox. I'm, so, I'm laughing yeah. because I think the heat is what reminded you that that's coming up, because he's so ooh. hot. <laughs> that was a bad tongue clip. That was, that was actually was, great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Why you tweeted, I'd rather be unemployed than make a cover letter. Uh. God, a waste this. of time. As someone that has hired many people, I think it's just a practice and will you do something ridiculous that you don't want to do and can you do it well? Huh, That's what a interesting. Because it's all formulaic. It's like, my name is this. This is why it's important. Blah, 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 blah. Hmm. So, I don't know. Do them though. Don't do them. Do not not do them, but I think they're a waste of time. Got it. Um, Noted. Well, Mike Drucker, you tweet it. Woke up sick and watched The Mandalorian and Gargoyles and Darkwing Duck. The only way this could bring back my childhood more is if my parents fought until my dad stormed out and my mom cried in the kitchen. That got a little too real, but the thing that really gets me is that Disney Plus has, what, been live for a matter of hours now, and people are already, like, three movies deep into this thing. Not even a day, y'all. I know. Like, take care of yourselves. Go for a walk, drink some water, or, like, go to work. I don't know. <laughs> go outside. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But there is a lot to watch. There is so, You know, I understand. And let's take it to the timeline. <laughs> Have you subscribed to Disney Plus? And if so, what shows are you excited to watch? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. I'm already so behind on so many shows from various streaming platforms. Mm -hmm. Like, I just don't know when, if I subscribe, when I'm going to have the time. Yeah, the time part is going to be hard because, you know, I'm currently binging True Blood and that's taking up all my extra yeah, time. Yeah, that makes sense. But the uh, Lady and the Tramp I'm hearing is good. The live action. Oh, noted. You know, uh, we can do a live action Lady and the Tramp but not 
Lion King, so we got our, got our winners there. We have questions. <laughs> Ashley, you tweeted, can someone tell me why baby clothes have pockets when they aren't even old enough to own shit? It's like, is this baby gonna put its like teeny tiny baby iPhone in the pocket? Like, what is the purpose of this? Baby Amex. Baby got coins. Why are you <laughs> like this? <laughs> like little me. Why like, was that the most, yes, yes, the, the my, most on-brand thing that you could have possibly Hey, I'm said. standing in my truth. Good for you. The big question here is why do baby clothing have pockets, but grown women's clothing doesn't have pockets? What does that say? Patriarchy? Answer me. Hmm. Well, so we didn't at the same time as Sully tweeted. <laughs> Going too hard on chips and salsa before I get my food is my biggest flaw. This is a, a hard one for me too, because whenever I just get, especially like guacamole, oh, it, yeah. like it's over, you know, probably not gonna get to the entree. Your food arrives, you're like, why did I order tacos uh, ex- again? No, exactly, yeah. <laughs> all right, tweet of the day? Yes. Comes from Emily. I can dance all night long, but when it comes to running for five minutes, I'm seconds away from meeting my deathbed. Wow, truth. I, the cardio it takes to be at the club to four in the morning is amazing. And yet, can't do it on a treadmill. I just had a thought. Yes. You know why people can do it? Alcohol. So maybe we should drink martinis while running and you could run longer. Well, I don't hate this idea. I also think it's a terrible, I mean, someone's going to get hurt. It works at clubs. Well, people get hurt at clubs. So. But also, like, you're not on a, a moving conveyor belt. <laughs> you test it out and report back to the rest we'll of us. Will do. Yes, next please. week on AM to DM, Zach runs on a martini. <laughs> well, up next, we're sitting down with Oscar-winning actor Tim Robbins. Here's a tweet from Darian. So impressed seeing a screening of Dark Waters, powerful, gripping, real-life story of the man who fought DuPont over cancer-causing chemicals in Teflon. He is a hero, and this is a must-see film. Joining us now is Oscar-winning actor, director, producer, and writer Tim Robbins, one of the stars of the new film, Dark Waters. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. So can you start off by just telling us a little bit about the real-life story that this movie is based on? Well, there's a guy... hold him to be a hero named Rob Balot, uh, a lawyer who was working in a law firm that actually represented chemical companies. And uh, someone who knew his grandmother came with a bunch of evidence about uh, some pollution that DuPont was doing at a place called Dry Run. And Rob took the case on. Uh, and uh, it, it, the, I play his boss, who uh, allows it somehow in this, in this culture, he allows this lawsuit to go, to go on. Uh, he supports it. Uh, and Rob works for, played by Mark Ruffalo, pl- works for 20 years to try mm-hmm. to get some uh, settlement on this uh, incredible um, pollution caused by this, uh, it's called um, these, uh, these forever chemicals. They, mm. they go into the water system and never leave. And uh, I don't know if you uh, remember, but there was a case, uh, this was Rob's case, about Teflon. Mm-hmm. And uh, Teflon being toxic and, and, and uh, being cancer-causing and causing a lot of uh, ill effects on all the people that were working at DuPont and around that area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a clip of your performance in the film, which we saw last night, and it's really fantastic, so let's take a look. Has anyone even read the evidence this man has collected? The willful negligence, the corruption? Read it, and then tell me we should be sitting on our asses. That's the reason why Americans hate lawyers. This is the crap that fuels the Ralph Naders of the world. We should want to nail DuPont. Mm, so you play Mark Ruffalo's boss in the film. Mm-hmm. What was it like working with him? 
Mark's great. I've, I've done a couple. Uh, I did a, another movie with him called Thanks for Sharing. I've known him for a long time. Uh, he's one of the rare uh, actors in Hollywood, in my opinion, that uh, not only uh, is a great actor, but uh, takes the position that he is, is, is we're all so lucky to have and uses it for mm. other people's good, mm. uh, working for uh, water rights uh, throughout the country, working to uh, ban fracking. Um, front page of the New York Times today, EPA is, is now trying to, uh, to um, void any scientific studies made in the past that have linked chemicals or pollution to cancer. Wow. Mm. So now basically saying all your studies from the past, all your science is null and void. This mm -hmm. is the Environmental mm -hmm. Protection Agency yeah. mm -hmm. is now turning into a full-on arm of, of, uh, of regulation, of anti-regulation mm -hmm. for the chemical industry. Mm. And, and so Rob's suit, Rob worked for 20 years on this thing, got the, the, the largest sampling of, of uh, blood mm -hmm. from, from people affected by this, this forever chemical. And now his uh, study that took 15 years is now going to be voided if the EPA is able to do what they're trying to do right now. That sounds it's criminal. And, it, and the people that are going to suffer are us. Yeah. And that's that, not just us that are, might be against this administration, us, mm. all of us. Mm -hmm. Republican, Democrat, it doesn't, this, this chemical does not discriminate what kind of bloodstream mm. it goes into. Mm. Mm -hmm. And in your film, it takes place 20 years ago, and that's when we're first discovering about the chemical impact of this at the very beginning stages. What other parallels do you see back then that are happening today beyond current, uh, today's New York Times article? Well, there's always been a willful uh, attempt by industry to try to regulate itself. Mm. And I think what we've found again and again and again is that they're not capable of regulating themselves. Mm. The EPA didn't even exist until the 70s. So all the chemicals that existed before the 70s haven't even been studied. So this is one of the revelations that Rob found in his, Rob Blot mm -hmm. found in his, mm -hmm. in his research on this was that there are chemicals that are maybe having detrimental effects on, on us, on nature, uh, for many, many generations to come mm -hmm. that have not even mm -hmm. been studied to be regulated. And now the EPA wants to take away all the studies that were done to protect us in the effort of what? Profit? Profit? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's insane the amount of, of, of criminality that's mm -hmm. going on. And it's completely unchecked. We mm -hmm. don't seem to care. We don't seem to want to regulate this. We don't seem to want to change things. Mm. And so let's let's get angry about this. Let's 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 put this on the Twitterverse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we do want to talk about some of your other work, and it, of course, is the 25th anniversary of the Shawshank Redemption. Um, do you have any favorite memories from filming uh, with Morgan Freeman? I do. Very many memories of, of filming with Morgan, and um, it was a you know it was a wonderful uh, experience, but. Actually, the experience post the, uh, it coming out has been even better because the movie is like the little engine that could. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really recognized when it came out. Mm -hmm. But now it's the top film on IMDb. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, everywhere I go, people are, come, come up to me and tell me how important that film was mm -hmm. to them and mm -hmm. how uh, it's changed their life or changed their direction and the way they thought about things. And that's pretty rare. And I, I feel mm. really 
mm. blessed by that. Well, we're in such a moment where there are so many remakes and reboots. Would you ever want to see a reboot? Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> they have gotten no. They just I get, apparently tried to do it with Jacob's Ladder, and I, I'm not sure they succeeded. It's, it's, you know, it's, listen, John Huston, a great filmmaker, used to say, why do they remake good films? Let's remake the bad ones the good ones. <laughs> let, let, let it just be on its own in history. Well, one of the things you also mentioned is that, uh, you know, this movie really makes people think. And so um, how did working on it uh, impact your own relationship with the criminal justice system and the way you were thinking about it? Uh, on, on Shawshank? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, since I have a long relationship with that mm. from the time I was young, um, you know, I grew up in New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. I had friends that wound up in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. um, and so I never felt that far removed mm -hmm. from it. And so that when Shawshank came, it was an opportunity to tell a story that was was not the ordinary story of, you know, all the bad guys mm. and the whole how dangerous it is. And that's the way we tend to look at criminal justice in our films uh, and, and our television shows. Uh, I, I do a program inside uh, prisons in California. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we go in and uh, do rehabilitative programs with mm -hmm. men and women in, that are incarcerated. And um, it's a, uh, I, I've met so many uh, people with human potential, mm -hmm. people that are in there for draconian sentences, 40 years mm -hmm. for possession of pot because of a three strike rule. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on, you know, they're, they're, again, there but for the grace of God go mm -hmm. on. Or, you know, how many people are guilty in this society right now mm. of crimes that are have been sentenced to long sentences that are serving right now. Mm -hmm. And if, you, if you're gonna talk about legalizing marijuana, let's talk about uh, voiding the sentences of people that are in jail for possession of marijuana. Yeah. Mm. Well, you also wrote and directed uh, the film Dead Man Walking about the death penalty. How do you feel uh, seeing cases around the death penalty right now, especially like Rodney Reed? That one's been in the news. Yeah, uh, you know, it's a continuing problem. It's gotten somewhat better, but uh, as you see, there's there's been this, you know, it's like waves like this. You, it, they're tending to, they're, they're reintroducing all these cases. Uh, listen, I don't believe that the state has the right to take anyone's life mm. for a number of reasons. I can understand retribution on a personal level. As I have kids, I understand the anger of, of the victim's families. It's not our right to ask someone that works for the state, a, a correctional officer, to participate in the death of a human being. That, for me, is a moral line I can't cross. Mm -hmm. You cannot ask someone to participate in someone's murder. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it, it's, it goes against all mor morality in my mind. And this, let's just be honest, this penalty will never be administered equally in this country. If you have money, you're going to get off. Mm -hmm. If you do not have money, you are much more likely to be executed in the current system. Mm -hmm. And that is another reason why I think it's unfair and should not be, mm -hmm. uh, we shouldn't be participating in this. Mm -hmm. Most civilized countries don't have the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why do we feel the need to, to do it? Hmm. Well, staying on uh, some topics in the news, you are an outspoken Bernie Sanders supporter. So why does he appeal to you? He's been who he is <laughs> for a long, long time. And he doesn't change his policy because he's running for president, as we're so used to seeing. Uh, you know, people, you know, kind of swaying one way to get a certain vote, saying things that they feel will get votes. Bernie's been who he is for as long as he has, has been alive. 
And uh, I want to support that. I want to support an honest person that is trying to change things. And as he says, it's not about him. It's about all of us. And it's not going to happen without all of us rallying mm. behind this kind of the ideas that he has proposed. Why is it? Why, why do we feel in this country every time we get sick that this is going to compromise our well-being, not just our health, but whether we can afford our apartment, mm -hmm. whether we can afford food? It's, it's, it's inhumane that we live in a society like that, mm -hmm. that, that everyone's uh, fearful of going broke because they get sick. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a num any number of things, you know, student debt that is you know, crippling people from getting a good start, a leg up in life. Mm -hmm. just, the, just the possibility of trying to you know, get out of debt in this country is, is a daunting task. So yes, there's, there's certain inequalities that have to be addressed. Mm. The environment, the, uh, the Green New Deal, this, this has to happen now. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're aware of it, I'm sure you are, but We're in a, trouble. There's yeah, a lot yeah, of bad yeah. stuff happening. Yeah. And it ain't no accident. And it's no uh, it's 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 again so sad to see on the front page of the New York Times, again, this government going after scientists mm -hmm. who have done meticulous work to try to make our lives safer and are still mm. pushing, 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 trying to change things that have been protecting us. Listen, I moved out into Los Angeles for college in the early 80s, and it was dark. The smog was there. Guess what happened over the last 30 years? It got cleaner. Why? Because California mm. had the most progressive legislation on emissions control. Mm. That actually works. Science actually works, folks. It's something, it's something <laughs> that indicates a problem, and then we, we, as humans, we have to solve the problem. Mm. And if we deny science, we're going to, this problem is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and before you know it, we're not going to be able to solve it. Mm. So it's time to, to, to I've, in my opinion, support candidates that will <laughs> get that. Really get that. Yeah. Do you feel like the Democratic Party is doing right by Bernie Sanders in this election cycle? Absolutely not. Mm. Not Well, let's put it this way. Let's wait for the first vote, mm. okay? Then we'll see what democracy is, mm. okay? Because right now, uh, I saw something. Uh, there was a, uh, a picture on the Internet yesterday of, of uh, MSNBC panel, and they were showed all the candidates mm. coming up. Bernie wasn't even on there. Mm. He's one of the top three candidates. He's being erased in a lot of the coverage. They, they're like, oh, let's talk about Warren and Biden. Wait a second, guys. There's a guy here that has more supporters than both of those people, more contributors, and he's not being talked about. Yes, mm -hmm. I think it's time to, you know, in a way, I think the equalization, the democratization of information that Twitter and, and um, other uh, social media have is it's absolutely essential right now because the narrative out there is not is not expressing the truth, in my opinion, mm. and uh, I feel I get more of that, more of that truth, uh, in social media. Mm. Right? Mm. Well, speaking of social media, I have to ask you about a profile I read earlier this week of you in the Times, where you yelled at Henry Kissinger, called him a war criminal <laughs> from your car. Is that correct? I did, and uh, I was with my son at the time, who was pretty young, but I saw him coming out of a restaurant in Santa Monica, in California, 
And it was the first thing that came out of my mouth. I rolled down the window. You just let it out. And I, 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 had, an, I had an opportunity mm -hmm. to say something to someone who was a war criminal, yeah. and I called him a war criminal. And that reminded me of a recent controversy with Ellen DeGeneres and George W. Bush, where people were mad that she didn't say anything to him while they were sitting at a football game. Were you she, following that controversy, and what were your thoughts on it? Listen, she did not just say anything to him. She accepted an invitation from him. Yeah. So that's, you know, listen. I'm all for going across aisles and making peace with people. But uh, there's certain people that are walking around right now that are responsible for a lot of death. Yeah. Uh, he being one of them. That is, uh, for me, something he has never reckoned with, never taken responsibility for. And Henry Kissinger is another one of those people that seem to be living in this kind of elite bubble where it's all okay, you can do whatever the hell you want to in your life, pay no ramifications, but I'm sorry, I work with people in prison that have done a lot less than that, mm -hmm. that are spending years and years, if not their entire lives in prison for offenses, and they're paying for it, they know what they've done and they've accepted responsibility for it. Meanwhile, you have people going to football games and. Everything's fine, and, and they're, they're, oh, it's, isn't it cute? No, it's not cute. There's 100,000, I'm sorry, there's a million people that died from that war. Um, there's a refugee crisis that is still going, raging across Europe because of that war, and no one's taken any responsibility. Yeah. And by the way, Tony Blair's in the same boat. Yeah. He should be, you know, these, these people are allowed to do this because we, as a society, don't demand any kind of ramifications for it. We don't demand that they take responsibility for it. Mm. And that, what does that lead to? That leads to more behavior like that. That's going to continue on and on and on as long as these people are allowed to just skate. Yeah, mm. or, and they have to watch out for you driving down the street screaming war yeah, criminal now. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to think about that every time I'm in Los Listen, Angeles. You, <laughs> I'll get you. Yeah, you yeah. really will. Well, thank you yeah, so thank much you for so being much. here. It's My been pleasure. great catching up and thank talking you. about all the things, and your film thank is wonderful. Uh, Dark Waters is in theaters in New York and Los Angeles on November 22nd, and everywhere on December 6th. More Amp to DM is up next. Here's a tweet from People Magazine. Whitney Houston's best friend Robin Crawford breaks her silence on their love affair in a new memoir. Here's a tweet from Puncturer. So now that Robin Crawford has confirmed her relationship with Whitney Houston, it's just a shame to think that if the world had been a bit kinder, less homophobic, and paid attention to the real problem, drugs, then maybe, just maybe, Whitney would still be here today. Here's a tweet from LZ Granderson. People want Whitney to rest in peace, but don't want Robin Crawford to live in peace. She was talked about while with Whitney, avoided interviews after being forced out of Whitney's life, demonized in documentaries, and now my friend is painted as a villain for defending what they had. Y'all cray. Ooh. It's a lot. It's a lot. But, you know, I'm so happy Robin Crawford has decided to come out and tell her story, which I think a lot of you are now seeing across Twitter. Um, her book drops today, which is about her long, long relationship with Whitney Houston that many of us have heard the rumors of for many years because she was her assistant. Mm. Um, and they were probably, I would say, the most famous Hollywood couple that was in the public eye, that people, or two people in the public eye that worked together, that people were like, they're obviously together, mm. but they would never talk about it. Mm. Um, so it's been a really great day for her to tell that story. And you actually talked to her. I did, yeah. I did. So I am one of the people that Robin Crawford asked 
podcast to sit down with her to tell her story for the first time in the decades she's been dealing with um, hiding this part of her and Whitney's life. And it's been really tremendous to see how we as a community are dealing with her coming out very different than mm. others. You know, there was a lot of fear when she was going to tell her story of the fact that they were together as teenagers. And when Whitney became very famous and was signing with Clive Davis, she told her, you know, we can't be physical anymore. Mm. We're not going to have a sexual relationship, but we're still going to be close. You're going to work with me? Um, that people were really, I thought we're going to say like, oh, well, now she's outing her. She's doing all these things. But people have really leaned into the fact of like, this woman has gone through decades of repressing a story. And now we live in a time and place, even under President Donald Trump, who has regressed LGBTQ rights a lot. We now live in a space in which she can tell her story and we can wrap our arms around her. Yeah, I, I definitely have seen some people reacting like, oh, just like let Whitney leave her mm-hmm. in peace and that kind of thing. But it really gets at this idea of like when a story is a person's story. Yeah. And like everyone should have the autonomy to be mm-hmm. able to own what happened to them yeah. in their life and share that story as well. Yeah, and when you hear Robin talk about this, it just will pain you so much because I think many of us as queer people have been in the space that she was at for many decades mm. where people are talking a lot about your body, what they think you're doing with it, who you're doing it with, but you can't really talk about it due to maybe your parents may kick you out or maybe your career would end like Whitney Houston's. And that's the reality. She lived at a time in the 1980s in which Luther Vandross also had to hide many parts Mm. of himself and many other artists because if they did come out, everything would be taken away from them. So they could live in what we would call a glass closet where you got to talk a lot about them, but they couldn't talk Mm -hmm. back. Um, But now we live in a time where you have people like Sam Smith, Troy Sivan, uh, King Princess, all these pop stars who get to be with their partners and love out loud. Um, And we now have space for Robin Crawford's to come out and say, you know what, me too. Mm. Well, I'm excited to learn more about this story. Oh, it's gonna, I, I'm excited for you to listen. You know, our family, just out here, rolling yeah, deep yeah, out here. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, well, let's take it to the timeline. What do you think of Robin Crawford coming forward? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm Up next, you'll see my conversation with the cast of Betrayal. According to one critic, Betrayal has a, quote, starry pitch and picture-perfect cast imported from the smash London staging. Now on Broadway, Betrayal stars my next guest, Zoe Ashton, Golden Globe winner Tom Hiddleston, and Charlie Cox. Welcome, y'all. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks so much. Yeah, so this is uh, all of your Broadway debuts. Um, and Tom, I want to start with you. What do you love the most about performing on Broadway, uh, especially after coming off these big blockbuster films? Well, I've never done it. I mean, that I'd always, my first came to New York when I was 17. And I remember going to Times Square and seeing all the, the streets that go off Times Square where all the theaters are. And, and uh, before I even dreamed of becoming an actor. And Broadway as a community of theater is, is legendary. It's, mm-hmm. it's, um, and I'd never done it. And what I've discovered is the extraordinary warmth and generosity mm. of the community here. It really feels like a community. Everybody goes to see each other's shows. And um, it's very exciting. You feel that people have, are, I know from going to the stage where people have come in from all over the country and from all over the world. They've come to New York mm. and they maybe come for a week and pack in lots of shows. And that's been very thrilling is to be part of this amazing tradition. Well, thinking about that audience, Zawe, the show comes off of a sold-out run in London. Have you found that performing for British audiences versus American audiences, are they different at all? I mean, no, they're not different. The play has a lot of London references in it, so there are just lines that now that will never get a laugh <laughs> ever again because they're about such specific parts of London. But I think what's amazing is being able to come here and just as Tom said, just be part of this incredible dynasty. Uh, I've been to our theatre and seen some of the best Broadway shows that I've ever seen. And so walking in and 
and suddenly becoming part of that firmament is incredible. Mm. And I also think we just didn't want to stop doing it. Mm -hmm. We wanted to carry on. So mm. the fact that we get to extend and and deepen the roles mm. and, and keep exploring the depth of this incredible play is just a blessing. Mm. Well, we actually have a teaser clip of Betrayal. Let's take a look. There are no hard distinctions between what is real and what is unreal, nor between what is true and what is false. Sometimes you feel you have the truth of a moment in your hand, and it slips through your fingers. Our beginnings never know our ends. Do you like that? What are the Ooh. One of the things that I found really fascinating is that this show was actually written in 1978, yes. certainly at a time uh, when some cultural attitudes uh, around infidelity were different. Um, also, I think around uh, men and women who engage in infidelity um, were different. Um, so, Charlie, how, how does that impact your character? Oh, wow. Um, you know, if when we... I'm amazed and have been from the beginning of rehearsal about how much the play seems to transcend the decades that mm -hmm. it was written in. Um, it feels very, there are, there are maybe one or two moments that stand out as being, that maybe date the play a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, Zowie talks about, you know, going into American Express mm -hmm. to pick up a letter mm -hmm. rather than reading a text or something like that. <laughs> um, but, um, but other than that, you know, the, 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 the way that the characters communicate, the dynamics the, uh, of the relationships, um, obviously the feelings and the emotions, they feel very, very current and very... Mm. Um, um, up to date, so um, and I and I think I think that's true of all great art. It feels you know it has an element of timelessness about it, and I think mm. this play is certainly has that. Mm. So I do also, do you also feel that sense of timelessness. Do you think that our attitudes have shifted a lot since 1978? Well, what's interesting is being the female component within mm. this betrayal, within the affair, and so answering that question, I feel like uh, also covers this attitudes to, towards men and women and, mm. and, and infidelity that you just posed a second ago. Um, I, feel, I feel like the best thing about this play is no one is held accountable. Mm. I think Pinter is satisfied that all of their lives are going to be ruined mm. <laughs> by, in many, in some ways. Would you agree with that? He's sort of satisfied that the, the pain that they've been through is enough of a punishment mm. um, because no one is really singled out as being to blame yes, for yes, the affair. I, um, yeah. I mean, in many ways, I'm the common denominator in the affair, but I, do, I, don't, feel the, I don't feel like there is this huge... I don't feel the judge. I don't feel the pressure of judgment on me, yeah. actually, when I'm in this piece, and, and I, I'm really glad of that because it feels like she's a very modern woman, these, these two men feel um, like, they, we all feel like we're in the same sort of mm. era together and mm. escaping any, any of that judgment, hopefully, from yeah. the inside of it anyway. Yeah, I definitely found myself wondering, like, who is the villain here? Is there a villain here? Like, yeah. how, how is that playing out within this dynamic? So that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I actually believe what I just said, to be honest. <laughs> and that's the thing about the play. As soon as you say something definitive like, about it, you go, um, actually, <laughs> the, the piece just moves. It's just a, it's a shifting piece. And each yeah. night is different. And each night, I certainly believe things to be true that on another night maybe aren't. 
Say something. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> I think, well, you Save me is what you mean. Save me. <laughs> yeah. Save me. Well, yeah, well, listen, the last time that this show was on Broadway, a real-life married couple, Daniel Craig and Rachel Weisz, were, uh, did the show together. Um, mm. Of course, it is such an intimate setting, and romance rumors will fly. So, um, Tom, can you tell me about your bromance with Charlie? We have photo evidence. Do we have enough time? <laughs> you have photo evidence? We do. We have photos of them, yeah. We, um, we, well, Charlie and I have known each other for a long time. We, um, we first met in... Uh, oh, look, there we are, look. Yeah, there you are. Oh, <laughs> that's, recent. that's recent. Find we, someone look. who looks at you. It's interesting. We, I thought they were going to put out a photo from 2008. Or <laughs> 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 some other ones. Oh. Yeah. We are, well, we've, yeah, we have, we, it is a bromo. Have you got a bromance? Um, well, I don't know, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's quite a bromance, quite a We're all good friends, and we've known each other for 10 years, and, and, and we haven't, I've never worked, we've never worked with each other, and it's been such a pleasure, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, really. Working together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done all sorts of things. We've played squash endlessly. Um, we started playing squash because the characters in the play talk about yes, squash yeah. all the time. And I think in the play, Pinter means the squash to be a, both a thing they do that's, that is part of their friendship, but also as a kind of battleground mm-hmm. for their competition and for their egos. And we started in February playing squash. We thought it would be helpful as research and preparation for the play, but it's given way to us just loving mm. playing squash with each other. One of the lines yeah. I have in the play is I say, it's a bit violent squash. And if you look very carefully, you'll see a very nasty it, it, bruise. I have a bruise on my Ouch. finger. Okay. And I got, um, I got, I got cracked on the knuckles. I went for the face. I have to say, the thing that I would worry about you playing, so I would be like, aren't you going to injure yourselves before a show? Like, that no, I really, hurt my, I really hurt my hand. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really you, you, you've hurt <laughs> your hand. He hurt his leg. What I will say is the the... Play genuinely did change after the first time that they played squash together. Really? I think you played in the second week of rehearsal or yes. something, and then suddenly we were on. We were mm. ready for Broadway at mm. that point. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys also swapped roles for Halloween. Um, you dressed up as Loki, and Tom, you dressed up as Daredevil. So whose idea was this? <laughs> I don't know. Your idea, you know? <laughs> yeah, we, 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 <laughs> sort of, idea. we thought we'd do something for Halloween, and um, so many people, we've, we go to the stage door every night and sign playbills, and so many people have, have played with this idea um, of, you know, is Daredevil having an affair with Loki's wife, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> 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 so we, um, we thought we'd do something fun, and what was so silly was... Uh, was was dre- sort of dressing each other, you know, yeah. making adjustments. Charlie had a special helmet for me to wear, <laughs> and I was and I was saying, you know, you can wear the costume, but you must make sure you wear the wig. Like <laughs> <laughs> um, I just adjusted just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But we had a, we had a good time, and then Zowie was Captain Marvel, and. Oh. Um, Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so. Eddie Arnold, who plays the waiter, was Captain America. So we were, we were captained we were on both awesome. sides. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, how does it feel to have these two superheroes kind of vying for your attention eight nights a week? Oh, it's just, it's just absolute hell. I mean, <laughs> um, no, I mean, we joked actually when we started that it was me that was the only non-superhero in the piece. I mean, that can be changed. That can be changed. You, I'm joking, but it's it's. What it is, is we've started this play and from the beginning had the most amount of trust in each other Mm -hmm. that I think it's possible to have between three, four actors. Mm -hmm. The play that we're doing is called Betrayal, but the play behind the scenes is really called Absolute Trust. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) Um, So to be coming to the end feels extremely 
surreal and very, very sad. Yes, and- what is crazy is that we have, we've done, we started rehearsing at the beginning of February, uh, which is in the winter, mm. and it's almost winter again. Is that winter, February? February is winter. <laughs> and we've done two, over 200 performances, well, and we only have 40 left. Yeah. Um, but they've been, they've been special, each and every one of them. Everyone, you know, we've had such a... It's, it, it, well, I keep time. saying, and I'm, I keep saying this, that we will always remember this as the year of mm. betrayal. Yeah. Mm. And, it, and it was, it's lovely that it really was an, a calendar year. Mm. Yeah. You know, 2019. I read the betrayal. play at the beginning of January. Well, yeah. For the first time. Very full yeah. Well, Zoe, I do want to go back to something that you said, which is that you could be a superhero. We actually had Benedict Cumberbatch and Elizabeth Olsen on the couch recently, and they both spoke about an all-female uh, Marvel movie. So thoughts on that? I think that's a wonderful idea with yeah. me as the lead. Did they say, did they say something <laughs> that? We'll have to add that this in. This is really great news. Um, yeah. I think that's a really great Fantastic. idea. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Tom, what do you think? Oh, fant- wonderful, really. I, th- I mean, I, don't, I haven't, don't have any inside info on that, but that okay. sounds like a... Tremendous idea, yeah. What do you think? Well, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, cool. We'll, we'll all stand behind this. Well, I do want to ask your thoughts, uh, actually, about some remarks that famed director Martin Scorsese uh, recently made. Um, he said, Marvel films aren't cinema, and then he did try to explain his comments, but what did y'all feel about that? I love Martin Scorsese. Um, I, I mean, I grew, watched his films all my life, and, and um, he's one of the greatest filmmakers alive and working today. Um, of all time, yeah. Yeah, of mm. all time. Mm. But I, I mean, alive. Yeah. He's also alive. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, all, all is forgiven for Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he can, everyone's entitled to their opinion. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as the new lead in the all female Marvel. <laughs> please, please. I would just like to say that. I mean, fi- that film is escapism. And, and what's in- incredible is, again, to be on stage with these two. Uh, men who have these iconic uh, roles in mm. this universe and actually theatre is such a, a leveller I mm. think mm-hmm. where, if, if, if they couldn't you know if they couldn't do it mm. we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be here mm. now and it's just so it, it's such a pleasure just to be able to get back to doing theatre and, and showing the exact reason that you sort of do this job because it all comes from in here at the end of the day, you know? Mm. Well, I think that is a lovely note to end our conversation on. Thank you all so much for joining Thank me. You for Thank, us. Thank you so much. So much. Thank you. You can catch Zawe Ashton, Tom Hiddleston, and Charlie Cox in Betrayal on Broadway between now and December 8th. Up next, there's more AM to DM. Do you ever find yourself thinking of ways to get more energy? Well, you are in luck because this is Fuel Your Go presented by the all-new 2020 Nissan Versa to help boost your energy throughout the day. And today, I'm joined by BuzzFeed writer Maitland Quitmeyer, who has some hacks to keep you energized. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming here to help me wake up for the show. <laughs> all right, so getting energy to start my day is usually the hardest part. Yes. What can I do for helping me get that initial burst of energy? Yeah, so how you start your day kind of impacts the whole rest of it, your mm-hmm. grogginess level. So definitely. We all love to hit that snooze button. Try to hit it less. You can get an alarm clock with no snooze button at all. Wait, uh, how do you I, wake up? I know. It's like, I feel like I have to get up. I can't hit snooze. Restarts your sleep cycle, and then you get interrupted 
sets your whole day off to a bad start. Um, they also have alarm clocks that literally shake your bed and jolt you awake. Reviewers swear by it to kind of get them out if nothing else works. Like an earthquake. Like a little baby earthquake. Okay, yeah. very controlled one. All right. <laughs> Definitely. And then once you get up for the day, it's kind of like depends what you feel like doing. Um, if you take a shower in the morning, try a really energizing smelling body wash like citrus and ginger okay. um, or a morning yoga routine, anything that'll kind of like get you started. All right, anything to get you moving, out of bed, you know, breathing some. Okay, those are some good pointers. All right, so always ambitious, tweet it. I need another boost of energy, but I don't like coffee or energy drinks. You know, I've been reducing my coffee intake now. I'm down to one cup a morning. Wow. But what are some non-caffeine things that we could do to consume to make us wake up some? Definitely. I'm a, like definitely on the coffee train. Too many cups, get jittery the rest of the day. Uh, so you can start out with a really satisfying breakfast or mid-morning snack. Think like a, a toast with whatever toppings you want. It doesn't have to be avocado. It could be cheese, berries, an egg, beans, like a little caprese salad, whatever like kind of gets you going and won't give you that mid-morning slump. You can also try a smoothie with your fa favorite fruits. Um, and if you do want that little hit of caffeine, there are a lot of great smoothie recipes that have cold brew in them. So oh. get a little caffeine, but not too much, and also some other nutrients to get you through the morning. Magical. My smoothie can have some exactly. caffeine Two in it. Two for one. Wow, you are a magician. I love that. I'm going to try that. Well, Pris, you tweeted, can we have a designated nap hour at our jobs, you know, to prevent midday slump for science, of course? <laughs> and so we have to bring up this fact, you know, we all get midday slumps, but what are some ways for us to push through that, get some energy that isn't maybe coffee related? Definitely. Maybe take a walk around the office, around the block. Uh, if you are sitting at a desk all day, try one of those laptop stands that turn any desk into a standing desk and kind of like get on your feet for a while. It kind of depends on what's right for you. Um, and and if your schedule or your office do allow for nap time, a 20-minute power nap is really great, especially if you have a little caffeine before, and when the caffeine kicks, you wake up from your nap and you're ready to go. Wait, you time your caffeine? You time, with... It like takes about 20 minutes to hit your hit your. You are, there's witchcraft ha happening today. You're giving me lots of really love interesting... a nap. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but why are we so tired in the first place in the middle of the day? Oh my God, we're all so busy, right? Yeah. It's crazy. I think like a burnout is a huge part of our lives these days. And I mean, for me personally, there's just like too much good television on. There's only so many hours in the day. It's hard to keep track with like everything that's going on. All right, so Maitland, just because the workday is over, it doesn't mean you gotta go, can go to bed, but you need to stay energized for that. What are some tips for after work energy? Totally. If you're someone who works out after work, try not to keep it too late because that might keep you up late at night. Go for a walk, do something great. If you are home, maybe call a friend, catch up with them, see how their day has been going. Uh, maybe put on your favorite tunes, uh -huh. tackle a couple of those really easy to-do list items to give you a sense of accomplishment, and those things really do start to like oh, build up after An endorphin rush from the accomplishments. Yeah, right? Oh, that's yeah. good. I love that. All right, so what happens if none of this works? What is a tip that you live by? Under eye concealer. <laughs> Uh, concealer, concealer, concealer. Draw it in a little triangle under your eye. Yeah. To highlight the brightest part of your eye. Oh, Everyone a little cool. fake it with concealer. Yeah. I love that. That's great. I'm going to remember that for later today. Well, Maitland, thank you so much for helping me today. Thanks These were really, me. really helpful. And you guys, you stay tuned for more AM to DM up next. Welcome back. We had some really good interviews today. Tim okay. Robbins, a real one, right? Like, give me the strength and energy to scream, War criminal <laughs> at a world leader. Like, amazing. Couldn't you even imagine if you were just walking down the block and you, like, see <laughs> a famous person roll their window down and just I just do the damn thing? I, you and I have both been on the presidential trails and other trails with yeah. politicians, and I've never once seen someone, like, scream war criminal. I've seen them do other things, but I've, I've never seen... seen yeah. But I could not imagine myself doing it, especially if I was Tim Robbins. Like, you're, like, in a car, like, yeah, war criminal! And, like, paparazzi just start snapping you, so... Yeah. Yeah, good luck to you. Well, 
Nonetheless, great to chat with him the about baddest. that moment. My so, new yeah. possibility. <laughs> well, we asked, what's a commercial that makes you cry? And SecDef Esperanto tweeted, the Sarah McLaughlin dog one. That's what I was saying, okay? Oh, you were right. Yeah, they're engineered to make you cry, pretty much. And give money. Yeah. Well, after our conversation about the danger of gender reveal parties, Jamie Jeffries tweeted, why is the gender reveal part specified? Why not just parties in general? Just as many backyard barbecues result in accidents, parties sometimes result in accidents. This is not new. Okay, so. <laughs> you missed the point, girl. Yes. Like, uh, well, yeah. Well, so when we talk about that plane crash the other day that no one was actually tremendously hurt in, they were trying to do like a blue dust across the thing. When that fire broke out and made $8.2 million worth of damage across 47,000 acres, that was because they were trying to explode something to show blue dust. I think male genders are really destroying everything, but that's for another day. It was a surprise. But that's the point. Barbecues, I'm not trying to make an alligator eat the right. watermelon. Right, that's the thing. But it's <laughs> like, these are not normal party problems. These are extreme, ridiculous, heterosexual gender reveal problems. I so, yeah. Problems. Yeah, I mean, go side. Thank you. I always say straight people are wild. Y'all are really tremendously wild. Proof. Ugh, well, we'll probably have more stories about what the crazy things y'all do for later, but we're done for today. So thank you to our guests, Louise Olivas, Julie Beck, Zawe Ashton, Charlie Cox, Tom Hiddleston, and Tim Robertson. We'll be back here at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Have a great rest of your day. 